Sunday called Church Words, where we are investigating terminology that gets utilized in church context, but often doesn't get utilized in everyday conversation and therefore becomes a form of Christianese or a specialized jargon related to Christianity. And this morning we're going to turn our attention to a new word, a word that can be controversial. A man arrived at the gates of heaven and noticed that there were two lines at the entrance. One line had a sign that read, predestined. The other line had a sign that read, free will. So he had to make a choice, and he decided to go stand in the predestined line. And while he was standing there, an angel walked up to him and and said, Why are you in this line? And he told the angel, I'm in this line because I chose to be in this line. So the angel said, Well, you don't belong here. You should be in the free will line. So the man walked over and got in the free will line. And after a while, an angel walked up to him and asked, Why are you in this line? He says, Because I was told to be here. And the man was completely confused about how he was going to get into heaven. Because is it a matter of free will, or are we predestined? That's the underlying issue around this church word that we call predestination. As I said, it's a controversial term when you spend time really investigating it, because there is a a large block of, of people claiming to be Christians who's who believe that predestination has nothing to do with you and everything to do with God. It's built on a theology that's intended to uphold the sovereignty of God to the highest standard. So there's a a, a sincere reason behind it, although there is, I believe, a flawed understanding of the subject from Scripture. And so this morning... As we investigate another church word, we're going to deal with predestination and do our best to understand what the Bible has to say about it. One thing you'll discover is that predestination is biblical. We should not shy away from this terminology because the terminology comes from the Bible. Six times in the New Testament, you will find use of the verb predestined. This is... Not a made-up word. This is a biblical word. It's actually the comp- a compound of two Greek words. One of the Greek words is the pro part, or, or the, the pre part. It's the, the pronoun pro in Greek, and it means before. The second half of the word, from the part that we get the destination part, is from a Greek verb that means to determine. So this Greek word literally means to predetermine or to decide beforehand. It is a biblical word. And when you study the six biblical references to predestination, you'll discover two major associations. The first is an association with God's plan. Predestination is associated with God's plan. You can see this in the very first appearance of this Greek term in Scripture. It's in Acts chapter 4 in the middle of a prayer. 
Peter and John had just been released from Sanhedrin custody where they were charged not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. And when they reported what had happened to them, how they had been arrested and, and, and how they had been questioned and how they had been threatened, when they reported all that back to the disciples, they collectively lifted their voices to God and prayed for boldness. And it's in the middle of that prayer, particularly at verse 28, that they prayed that Herod and Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, that what they did was according to God's hand and God's plan, according to what had, he had predestined to take place. They acknowledged in their prayer that the arrest of Jesus, that the beatings of Jesus, that the crucifixion of Jesus at the hands of these individuals was all part of God's predetermined plan. And they cited Scripture to support it. In the middle of this prayer, they actually quoted from the second chapter of Psalm to show that their understanding of predestination, of God's pre-planning of what Christ would endure, that it was scripturally based. But what I find fascinating here is the, that predestination is linked with God's hand and God's plan or purpose or will, depending on which translation you read. And what the disciples were saying in this prayer is that God knew before he created the world what would happen, and he determined in advance how he would resolve it. God always knew that sin would corrupt his creation. And God always knew that he would have to sacrifice his son in order to secure his creation's salvation. So Jesus' death was all a part of God's pre-creation plan that he set in motion as soon as sin entered the world. That's why Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 says that God chose us before the foundation of the world. And that's why in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, Paul would say that God saved us and called us because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And then if you look at Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, Paul said that God promised eternal life before the ages began. So when you journey through the New Testament and look at God's plan, whether you're looking at God's selection of us, God's choosing of us, or God's uh, purpose being pla uh, planned for Jesus Christ, or his, his promise of eternal life, all of those things were part of God's plan before he ever created a thing. And this is why Paul would employ the predestined term in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the second occurrence of this term in the New Testament. And he writes about God's wisdom in this passage. Now, you won't find predestined in the English Standard Version or the New International Version or the King James Version or the New King James Version. But it's there. It's in verse 7. The New American Standard Bible is the only English translation that I typically use. 
that preserves the predestined terminology. Beginning in verse 6, Paul writes these words. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now what Paul is saying here is that Satan, since, since Jesus called Satan the ruler of this world, what Paul is saying is that Satan, the ruler of this world, and his cohorts did not understand God's predetermined plan for salvation because it was hidden from them. If they had understood it, they wouldn't have killed Jesus because that's how God was going to accomplish his plan. But they didn't understand it. Stand it. The significant part of this passage or the significant aspect of this passage for our study today is that God's plan of having his son crucified for mankind's sin is identified as something he determined before the ages. All of these verses that we just rolled through, all of them speak to the fact that God has had a plan from the beginning, from before Adam was created. And according to the Bible, that particular plan centered around salvation. See, all of these passages communicate to us that God was in control, has always been in control. That God had a plan from the beginning, and he continues to execute that plan. And that means predestination should give us great comfort. Because it's this reminder that our God is sovereign. That our God knows what he's doing, and that our God is ensuring that his plan comes to fruition. It's a beautiful thing that predestination is associated with God's plan. But the other association you need to be aware of in Scripture is an association with God's people. Predestination is associated with God's people. You see, the the second and third times you'll come across the term predestined in the New Testament are in that Romans chapter 8 passage we read as our Scripture reading. And I want to refer to it again, starting in verse 28 of Romans chapter 8. Paul says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. There's that plan again. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, did you notice the reference to both foreknowledge and predestination in this passage? Verse 29 says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. That term translated foreknew literally means knowing beforehand. 
So we have the term for predestined, that means deciding beforehand. And now we have the term for knowing beforehand. And it's interesting to me because it's as if Paul is making a connection between God's knowledge and God's selection. And that makes sense when you consider how God identified Israel, his, his chosen people, as a known people. For instance, in Amos chapter 3 and verse 2, the Lord said to Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, here's what we know about Israel. They were chosen by him. God chose Abraham and Abraham's descendants to be his special people. We'll talk more about that choice in just a moment. But now he transitions in the book of Amos to say, not only are you chosen, but you're known, intimately known in a unique way. Hosea seconds Amos' declaration in Hosea chapter 13 and verse 5, where he indicates that, that the Lord said to Israel, it was I who knew you in the wilderness. This idea of God knowing those whom he's chosen indicates an intimacy indicates a special relationship. And such intimate knowledge is not limited to his chosen people in the Old Testament. It's also stated in conjunction with his chosen people in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 3, Paul wrote that if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 9, Paul referred to the Christians in Galatia having come to know God and then corrected himself by saying, or rather, to be known by God. Thus implying that when one becomes a child of God, which he explained how to do just 10 verses earlier, when one becomes a child of God, he or she becomes known by God in a special way. The point is that in Romans chapter 8, predestination is associated with God's intimate knowledge of his people. And such an intimate knowledge infers an intimate relationship. That's where the final two references to predestination come into play. The final two references that we haven't looked at yet both occur in Ephesians chapter 1. In verse 5, Paul said that God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And then if you look at verse 11, he added that in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. In Ephesians chapter 1, predestination is linked with adoption and inheritance with these concepts that have to do with relationship. Predestination is linked with being a child of God. And Paul's point seems to be that God decided before the creation of the world who could be adopted and who could receive his inheritance, which means that God decided before the creation of the world who could be his children and who could be saved. But does that mean that God predetermined who will be saved? That's the problem most of us have with the dominant understanding of predestination. 
Most of the time when people in churches talk about predestination, they're talking about predetermined salvation. Meaning that God has arbitrarily decided who will and who won't be saved, and there is nothing you or I can do about it. But that's not how the Bible presents predestination. Predestination is associated with God's plan, and predestination is associated with God's people, but that does not mean that it is associated with predetermined salvation. See, here's what we need to understand. We need to understand two major components of predestination. The first is that predestination is a corporate standing. What I mean is that a group is predestined rather than an individual. That's why Scripture repeatedly indicates that God's people are chosen by Him as a collective group. In the Old Testament, the Israelites, the Israelites were chosen. The Israelites were reminded of this fact on multiple occasions, but notably in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6, Moses told the Israelites that you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. A very similar statement is made in chapter 14 and verse 2 of Deuteronomy, where Moses again told the Israelites, you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Israelites were chosen, collectively chosen as a group by God. And the same goes for his people in the New Testament. Because using the language of Deuteronomy, Peter said this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, you, a reference to Christians, a reference to the church, a reference to the audience to whom he's writing, which are the elect of God, those who are saved by the blood of Jesus. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. If you compare that language to the two passages from Deuteronomy, you're going to see a lot of overlap, a lot of correspondence between the two, because in this passage, Peter is utilizing the language of Deuteronomy to project that chosen status onto the church. It's moved off of the Israelites and onto the church. But he goes on, if you look at verse 10, he said, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Now to be fair, this is a call back to the book of Hosea, where one of Hosea's children, or I should say one of Hosea's wife's children, because it's not certain that child was Hosea's. But one of those children was named not my people. As part of this grand metaphor in the book of Hosea depicting God's relationship with the Israelites. But by the end of the book, Hosea is told to make that child his. To indicate that God has made the Israelites his own. In the same way, Peter is projecting that language onto the church as God's chosen people 
today. But this is not a compensatory pick. The church wasn't chosen because Israel failed. Instead, Scripture asserts that the church was God's choice before creation. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. We've already referenced it, but it said Paul, excuse me, Paul said that God chose us before the foundation of the world. The us there is the church. Predestination is a corporate status, meaning, meaning that the selection, the choice, is not an individual's salvation but the corporate standing of the people of God. That's the first component you really need to understand about predestination. The second component, and this is the only other one, is that predestination is a conditional state. What I mean is that those desiring to be a part of the predestined group must meet certain conditions in order to gain entrance. That's why Scripture repeatedly indicates that association with God is a choice made by individuals. The predestined status is applied to the group, but the individual still has to choose to be a part of the group. You see, if you go back to the Israelites, when they were escorted safely from Egypt to Canaan and were empowered to capture the land, when all of that was done, Joshua stood up and presented a choice to the people. A verse that's familiar to many of you, may even reside in some of your own houses. It's Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15. Where Joshua instructed the Israelites to choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your father served or the gods of the Amorites. But as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. They could choose Yahweh. They could choose the Lord God who had led them and escorted them this whole time. Or they could choose one of these other deities. They could choose the deities of of ancestors or the deity of the surrounding environment. Or they could choose God, the one true God. And he's put before them the choice. But notice, if they choose God... They must also serve God. That's the condition. And when you think about what it means to serve God in the context of Israel, that meant adhering to the conditions he had stated in the covenant for inclusion among his people. That would include things like circumcision, a kosher diet, participation in the sacrificial system, among many other things. But if you did not adhere to the covenant, then you weren't serving him. So you could be an Israelite physically and not one spiritually because you failed to complete the condition of serving God. And in the New Testament, We've already outlined how the church was chosen by God, but but God does indicate even under the new covenant that each individual has to choose to be a part of the church. Think about Luke chapter 9, verse 23 and 24, where Jesus said, If 
anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus starts off this passage with a conditional term, with the word if. That indicates that the following instructions were not forced on people, but offered to people. And inherent within this choice was the condition that if one chooses Jesus, if one chooses him, then he or she would have to follow. That means adhering to the conditions that he presented in his inspired word for inclusion in the church. Conditions for what it means to be a disciple. That would include things like moral living. That that would include participation in evangelism and service. There are conditions to being a part of the body. And we've already referenced Ephesians chapter 1. Twice in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5 and verse 11, the term predestined appears. But if you go back to Ephesians chapter 1, it's very interesting because Paul provides the grand condition. And that grand condition that's repeated over and over again may go easily unnoticed because this is basically a long run-on sentence. But that condition is being in Christ. Notice in verse 3 of Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And when you start looking at the blessings that are outlined in this passage, every one of them is connected to being in Christ. Verse 4, He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Skip down to verse 7. In Christ we have redemption through His blood. Verse 10. God's plan is to unite all things in Christ. Verse 11. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13. In Christ, when you heard the word of truth, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. All these blessings are the result of being in Him. But how does one become in Him? Well, if we go back to the book of Galatians, to the third chapter, just ten verses or so before we have reference to a passage we mentioned earlier, to, to uh, uh, being the passage about being known by God. Paul said this, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26, that in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. In other words, Paul indicates that in Christ status is equivalent to an adoption. When you are in him, you are a child of God. And then Paul went on to say in verses 27 through 29 of Galatians chapter 3, that as many of you as were baptized in Christ, into Christ, have put on Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. All that is to say that you reach in him status when you put Christ on in baptism. 
So what's the point? Predestination is a conditional state. The primary condition for us to be predestined today is for us to be baptized into Christ so that we become part of that predestined corporate body. So if you really want a definition of predestination, this is mine. Predestination is the foretold salvation of a corporate body based on revealed conditions. Because in order for predestination to make sense biblically, it involves a corporate standing and a conditional state. Now, you may have noticed that I've been using an airplane as a background for this section of the lesson. And I've taught on predestination before, so you may be aware of the metaphor that I intend to use. But I believe that securing a seat on an airplane is a good metaphor for predestination according to the Bible. You know, airlines have already scheduled flights between cities months in advance. They have predetermined the number of flights, the time of the flights, and the destination of the flights. Right now, you can purchase tickets for flights approximately a year in advance. And your responsibility as a potential passenger is to obtain a ticket and to make sure you are ready to board when the flight is ready to leave. The plane has a predetermined destination, not the passenger's. If the passengers want to go to that destination, then it is up to each individual passenger to board that plane. In the same way, God has predetermined the destination of his people, of the church. And it is up to every individual to secure their place among his people. I think this is where the parable of the wedding feast comes into play. According to the parable, a king invited anybody and everybody to his son's wedding. He did so after the original invitees rejected his invitation. Anybody and everybody could come to that wedding and the implication is that Right now, you and I have been invited to a great wedding feast. It's up to us to decide if we're going to accept that invitation. But as you read that parable in Matthew chapter 22, in the first 14 verses, you find out that an invitee to the wedding showed up, but was not wearing the appropriate attire. When the king saw it, he ordered his servants to cast him into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, in that parable, accepting the invitation was not the only thing that individuals had to do. They also had to abide by the conditions of the invitation. The condition of being dressed or clothed correctly. You and I have to face that same condition 
to be welcomed into the grand wedding feast that God has prepared in heaven for eternity. You and I receive the invitation, but when it comes to the final destination, we have to make the choice to be ready. And you can be clothed properly for that day by putting on Christ in baptism as Galatians chapter 3 said just a moment ago. You see, predestination is all about salvation. It's what God has already done for the corporate body that will be saved. But it's up to you and I to decide to be a part of that body. That's why Jesus would declare many are called, but few are chosen. This morning, you're invited to be numbered among the few. Won't you accept that invitation while together we stand and sing? Uh-huh.